Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to Reverb. My name is Alex Helberg, and I'm joined on the mic today by my co-producer and co-host, Calvin Pollock. Hey, Alex. Hey there, Calvin. And also our co-producer and co-host, Sophie Wadzak. Hey, Sophie. Hi, happy to be here. Excellent. I'm so happy to have you guys back for what I think is going to be a long-awaited sequel to an episode that we did a few months back. Some people might disagree. Calvin's making a face at me right now about this well, being long-awaited. I was going to say it's a long-awaited squeakwool. Um, like the Alvin and the Chipmunks, uh, the second film in that series. Yep, nobody does that better than him. Alvin and the Chipmunks, too. The squeak I think you'll see here <laughs> that that yeah. this is a uh, this is going to be a very silly one, and we're happy to have you. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, so the people have spoken. Uh, we've gotten a couple of uh, notes from folks, uh, both within and without the field, that they want us to do another reading of Scott Adams' book, Win Bigly, Persuasion in a World Where Facts Don't Matter. So I... Uh, we got, like, we got good feedback people want we did we had at least one person on twitter um yes. good friend abby backy yeah listen to uh, tc talk check out tc talk but we were requested by abby to uh do this sequel uh, or squeakquel and and here we are <laughs> and here we are here we are indeed we're kind of like the three chipmunks if you think about it we exactly kind of are, yeah. wait 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 hold on which which, which one would each which? of us be am i do oh, i get God. to be alvin here um, we got a wikipedia the chipmunk names the theodore i could tell you all about them but we can <laughs> more more chipmunks puns uh and jokes uh, to come in this episode to be sure uh, oh yeah so, i just wanted to say that scott adams is probably the most divorced rhetorical oh. theorist of all time which is saying something yeah uh, I, so some of the elder statesmen of the field wowie yeah you have got to be you have got to be <laughs> Without going into any of the other uh, beef on uh, the rhetoric side, uh, we should probably talk a little bit about what's happened to Scott Adams in the intervening time since we recorded our last episode. I believe that was uh, around the end of last year. Yeah, some things have gone off the deep end a little bit for Scott since then. You guys, uh, are you familiar with any of the, the goings-on with uh, with Scott Adams since? I, this is new for me. I'm excited. All right, so this is from his Wikipedia page under what you always know is going to be good when you have a Wikipedia section that says views on race. Here we go. Uh, so on February 22nd, 2023, Adams responded to a poll by Rasmussen Reports, a pollster often cited by conservative media, that asked respondents if they agreed with the statement, quote, it's okay to be white. The Anti-Defamation League said the seemingly innocuous phrase began being used online in 2017 as part of an alt-right troll campaign and is associated with the white supremacist movement. The poll showed 53% of black respondents agreed with the phrase, 26% disagreed, and 21% were not sure. On a YouTube live stream of his Real Coffee with Scott Adams program, Adams, who said he was upset that nearly half did not agree, characterized black people as a, quote, hate group and said, quote, the best advice I would give to white people is to get the hell away from black people. Just get the F away. I'd like to focus a lot of my life resources in helping black Americans, so much so that I started identifying as black to just be on the team I was helping. But it turns out that nearly half of that team uh, doesn't think uh, I'm okay to be white, which is, of course, why I identified as black, because so I could be on the winning team for a while. But I have to say, uh, th this is the first political poll that ever changed my activities. But as of today, I'm going to re-identify as white because I don't want to be a member of a hate group. I'd accidentally joined a hate group. So if, if you know, nearly half of all blacks uh, are not okay with white people, according to this poll, not according to me, according to this poll, uh, that's a hate group. That's a hate group. And I don't want to have anything to do with them. Wow. So, uh, yeah, not, not going, things are not going great for, for Scott. I mean, 
Yeah, I don't really know what else there is to say. Like hearing that, is that what you're saying? There wasn't a good. There was not. It was not warmly received in even the most slimy communities on Twitter. I think there were a lot of people. In fact, I think even uh, who's that cartoonist who used to do all the buff Trump political cartoons? Where he labeled Ben Garrison. Ben Ben Garrison. Ben Garrison actually did a cartoon that was strongly condemning Scott Adams for his uh, off the cuff remarks. Let's say. Well, I mean, I would. I would. Also, just say that you know, Scott. If you're gonna do a show about coffee, stick to coffee. I mean, you, there's plenty to talk about there. You don't have to bring in race. Um, why, you know, to 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 cop uh, uh, Dennis Leary. You know, why can't we just have coffee, coffee flavored live streams? Why can't we have coffee flavored coffee live streams? Why no, can't exactly. we do that anymore? Is it impossible to get a cup of coffee flavored coffee anymore in this country? You can get every other flavor except coffee-flavored coffee. They got mochaccino, they got chocaccino, frappuccino, cappuccino, rappuccino, alpuccino. What the f***? I do. I was going to say one wonders how that like really comes up as relevant in a, as Calvin points out, what sounds like a pretty casual show. But then we did, the last time we recorded, he did, if I remember, kind of jump from one thing to the other without not a lot of like grace in his transition. So... Maybe I'm not That's surprised true. that he would like find a way to to make it about that. But by the way, I, I don't know if we've mentioned so far. Scott Adams is the cartoonist who who does the famous Dilbert comic strip. Obviously, That's we mentioned right. that in the previous episode, but most famous for Dilbert and is now kind of an amateur scholar of rhetoric. <laughs> so and he claims, yes. That's Scholars that's that's where we come in to uh yes. you know tell him what we think about all that. Yes. Yeah, so to and and thank you Calvin for for getting us on track here. To, for those of you who did not listen to our previous episode, first highly recommend going and checking that one out. That is going to help a lot uh with understanding what exactly we're talking about in this episode. So, as I said before, we are looking through Scott Adams' book Win Bigly: Persuasion in a World Where Facts Don't Matter, which is taking on the rhetoric of Donald Trump, why Donald Trump is, in Scott Adams' words, a master persuader. And it's very important to Scott that we understand exactly what Donald Trump has done for political discourse in this country, which he seems to be kind of laudatory of. He thinks that Trump is good at what he does and has spoken in laudatory terms about uh, at least his persuasion skills. Now, in our first chapter, we talked about uh, Scott's sort of framing of himself as a self-styled hypnotist as well as a master predictor. That is kind of the, uh, and that's going to be a theme that keeps coming up here. Scott Adams fancies himself very, very good at predicting things, being able to see how the future will come about uh, through his understanding of persuasion. It was his sort of primary claim that Trump was going to win the 2016 general election for president because of his persuasion stack, as he calls it, uh, because of his just unbelievable skill with being a master persuader and what he calls punching a hole in the fabric of reality. So in our last episode, we had everything from, uh, you know, his consistent, just absolutely interminable bragging about his prediction skills to his taxonomy of persuaders into three different classes, uh, commercial grade, which he considers himself, cognitive scientists, which I guess would be people like us who have PhDs or uh, advanced degrees in this field of study and then master but not in but wait we should say we should clarify not in the field of cognitive yes science. not in the actual field no. of cognitive science <laughs> right that's right i forgot about all that yeah no it's very funny and then master persuaders who he claims have what is what he calls weapons grade persuasion skills and these are um, kind of the the practitioners that's right um, yep. so there's so you have like popular wonks that's scott Academic yes. wonks, that's, that's us. us. And then the practitioners in the field who are really, you know, fighting the battles every day. Yes. I believe the other luminaries that he cited in that category are Trump, Madonna, Peggy Noonan. I think that was a weird <laughs> one. And then, oh, uh, Steve Jobs, which is going to come up again in this chapter. Steve Jobs. Here. 
Yeah. Yes. Yep. Exactly. So, so before we get into this next chapter, I want to ask you to a framing question that I think is going to be something that we come back to again and again throughout the course of this episode. So we are people that look at and practice communication quite a bit ourselves. So I want to ask the two of you, do communicators have an ethical responsibility to be factual? I don't know if you can make a blanket statement communicating what and to whom? Because right. I feel like if you're somebody who's purporting to communicate factual information, then yes, if that's what you're saying that you're doing, or that's what people are reasonably expecting you to do, like reporters and news anchors, perhaps, or ideally politicians or public servants, like there are people who I think it's reasonable to expect that they would communicate factual information, but I don't know that everybody has to. Sure, that that makes sense to me. So in other words, if you are if you occupy a role where the public or your audience's expectation is that you will be factual then yes you do have an ethical responsibility certainly uh calvin what about you what do you think yeah i mean i i i agree with sophie that you know not if you're an author of fairy tales not if you're a, a comedian yeah but i do believe pretty strongly in ethical communication. I think a key part of ethical communication is not willfully manipulating information, um, presenting information that you know not to be factual for personal gain or institutional gain. I think that's that's how many of the worst problems in politics and society play out is through that kind of manipulation, especially at a large scale and especially by powerful actors and institutions. So yeah, I'm I'm pretty firmly in the pro camp. Factual factual communication is important. Sure. Well, to that end, let's go ahead and dive into uh chapter 1, why facts are overrated. Oh okay. good. <laughs> so, if the if the title of the book uh, uh persuasion in a world Who's where rating facts. facts? Are yeah. <laughs> That's my question. Politifact gets a, gets a uh, 5. Get... This five one gets out of a 10. This this chapter is going to get a pants on fire from our favorite uh, fact checking uh, institutions. So uh, we'll go ahead and dive right in here uh, to chapter one: uh, Why facts are overrated, according to Scott Adams, with the large heading here that reads: "The most important perceptual shift in history." This is the big bold heading that begins the chapter: "The most important perceptual shift in history." Scott begins. My spooky year, if you'll remember, he referred to his uh, his year of predicting Trump's rise to power was uh, spooky. It was very, uh, very vibey for him. Um, so his spooky year was fun for me, but it was also a dangerous time for the world's collective mental health. Enlightenment can be risky business. When your old worldview falls apart, it can trigger all kinds of irrational behavior before your brain rewrites the movie in your head to make it consistent with your new worldview. We all have movies in our heads that we believe are accurate views of reality, and those movies are very different. Normally we don't notice the differences in our personal movies, or we don't care. But when politics are involved, the stakes are higher. Then we notice. Wanted to stop really quick here and ask, what do you what do you guys think of the the movie based theory of cognition uh, that Scott Adams is giving us to begin here? I love it. I love movies. <laughs> I'm so I'm a hundred percent on board so far. This is uh, Plato's movie theater uh, is the projections that are placed onto the walls of our mind. He continues, emotions are already raw in election years, and millions of people are focused on the same topics at the same time. That's a barrel of gasoline and a lot of matches in one place. The last thing the country needed was millions of people simultaneously going nuts. I hoped I could reduce that risk by writing about Trump's persuasion talents and preparing the public for what I saw coming. That will all make more sense later. I'm just loving that, like, like the the, the self-importance of this, like I his yeah. his account of Trump's persuasion was the thing, like, holding the country together in that, yeah, in that terrible honestly, time. Like, what, where would we have been without him? 
That's Thank right. Thank God for his reporting. <laughs> I that that is true. I didn't really track that be- or clock that before, but yeah, he seems to think that like his he has the sort of grand delusion that a lot of op-ed writers have, which is, you know, if I don't write this, then the world around to hear what to be told and what like what's he going to say so we can all make sense of it. Like yeah, that's it's Exactly. Somebody's got to do it. Yeah, inflated ego is something that uh, that we've definitely clocked Scott for, and that is definitely not going to ebb in this uh, in this chapter. I also wanted to make sure the public did not miss the greatest show in the world. This was years before The Greatest Showman came out as a movie, so you know we're making movie references here to movies that Scott predicted uh, The Greatest Showman in. The- <laughs> I wanted to make sure that the public did not miss the greatest show in the world by looking through the wrong filter. If you watched the entire election cycle and concluded that Trump was nothing but a lucky clown, you missed one of the most important perceptual shifts in the history of humankind. I'll fix that for you in this book. I knew from my own experience as a hypnotist that Trump's extraordinary skill at persuasion would trigger massive cognitive dissonance and plenty of confirmation bias. If you're not familiar with those terms, I include quick definitions below. I'll go into more detail later. If you seek enlightenment, these are two of the most important concepts you will ever learn. So. Beneath here, we have a couple of definitions that are given. They're actually little breakout boxes. The first one is for cognitive dissonance. This is a mental condition in which people rationalize why their actions are inconsistent with their thoughts and beliefs. For example, if you think you are smart, but you notice yourself doing something that is clearly dumb, you might spontaneously hallucinate that there was actually a good reason for it. Or perhaps you believe that you are an honest person, but you observe yourself doing something dishonest. Your brain will instantly generate a delusion to rationalize the discrepancy. This is a common phenomenon in all normal humans, but we generally believe it only applies to other people. That's largely a pretty good definition of cognitive dissonance, but there's Mm -hmm. a couple weird things about it, like the use of the word hallucination. I don't think a cognitive scientist would use that. An actual cognitive scientist, not right. not us. Yes. To be clear. And also delusion, like mm-hmm. spontaneous delusion. Yes. It, he seems to imagine that cognitive dissonance is this thing where, like, your brain is generating movies in your head about. Yes. Which he's already uh, said, right? Which he's so already said, I guess. Movie, yes. Something happens that, like, keeps it flowing normally, like a blip in the. F- like, yeah, it's very um, passive. I'm really glad that you're picking up on this notion that these are things that just happen automatically, that these are spontaneous happenings that we are not even conscious of because, yes, exactly. Or Uh, or without even realizing it, yeah. Precisely, precisely. In addition, we have this definition of confirmation bias. This is the human tendency to see all evidence as supporting your beliefs, even if the evidence is nothing more than a coincidence. This is a common phenomenon that we believe happens only to other people. But I thought we didn't know what it was. <laughs> other people, but we're not aware of it at all. At right. He does that a lot where he kind of shifts who he's talking to. Like, yeah, he we... want the people to miss the greatest show on earth. So he was writing then. And if you thought it now, then you're about to be wrong. like, I, I don't know. I feel like he that's something he just kind of hops around with, like, who he's speaking to and about. Absolutely. Kind of a confusing way, but that's an aside. Yeah, no, I'm glad that you brought that up, though, Sophie, because one of the confusions we ran across in our previous episode was not really knowing who this book is for, other than Scott Adams himself. This really does seem to be kind of a book. And maybe his most loyal fans and followers. I don't, I mean, I don't know how many of those people are out there, and I'm very, I'd be very curious to learn more about those people any any dilbert or adams fans in the comments please please uh, email calvin pollock at no i'm just kidding <laughs> all right so uh let's get and, and i want us to keep these definitions in mind because one of the one thing that i think is kind of strange about this chapter and i'll just flag it for you now is he kind of just straight up drops these terms here and doesn't really come back to them very much. But it also, his definition of confirmation bias as the tendency to see all evidence supporting your beliefs, even if that evidence is nothing more than coincidence, and being a phenomenon that only happens to other people, or at least that we believe that it does, I think is kind of important for understanding Scott's own psyche as we continue here. So let's let's continue with our chapter. Oh, I wanted to quickly flag yes. um, as a way to recap some of what we talked about last time. Yes. He does mention there this alternative 
theory of the 2016 election, yes. which is that Trump was a lucky clown. Yes. And I think that at least I, in the last episode, made a very strong case that that actually is a much more plausible theory of, <laughs> how, of how that election played out. Right. And that, in fact, this book is an artifact of a time when we had a little less perspective and context about that election. Yes. And kind of the entire media. I mean, he thinks he's this iconoclast, but like a lot of mainstream media overcorrected and said, we're a Trumpist country now, or like Trump won this super impressive election. And like, it says so much about how powerful he is and his movement is. Yeah. Um, there, there were books in our field written about how amazing of a rhetorician Donald Trump was. Oh, and, and that's the other funny thing about the what we were talking about last time is how he was like, nobody was talking about this. So I had to like, yes, they were. Yes, yes they, they were. Exactly. The Everybody time. was talking. He really does make out like he's the one coming in with this true knowledge that we are not seeing and like opening yep. our minds. But it's yeah. pretty like standard stuff, a lot of it. Absolutely. And, you know, maybe he'll bring that in at some point that, you know, framing yourself as this bold truth teller in your own words is one of the strategies for being a master persuader. But again, Scott Adams is only commercial grade, so I don't know how much we can really expect coming from him. <laughs> again, by his own admission, he is a commercial grade persuader. So let's continue. I saw in the election of 2016 a dangerous situation forming. If the public misunderstood Trump's methods and intentions, and that seemed likely, things could turn ugly. Worse yet, the public might not appreciate the extraordinary richness of their choice in the election. No matter what you thought of Trump or his policies, he certainly was different. And he certainly knew how to make things happen. I thought the public deserved to see the Trump candidacy as clearly as possible without the biased framing that his adversaries were applying. You might be wondering how confident I was in my prediction, there's that word again, let's add the ding in there, in my prediction that Trump would win. Well, no one is a psychic. He is a hypnotist though. I can't know with total certainty what the future holds. For example, I couldn't predict what types of scandals would pop up along the way. But I do know persuasion. I know its power in a way that few people do, and I recognize that with Trump's level of persuasion skill, he was bringing a flamethrower to a stick fight. And the poor little sticks didn't see it coming. <laughs> did he really say that? Did yes, he did. <laughs> That's not good. I don't like That's the sticks not seeing it coming part because that kind of destroys the metaphor. Like a yeah. stick... If if the sticks hang on, if the sticks have the power of sight yeah. uh and and, and kind yeah, of agency. Stick, but knives don't it's not the knives that are being injured in a knife fight, so No, but, but if he's saying that these sticks can see something coming, then these sticks might actually be kind of powerful yes, and they, they might be his, able to destroy a flamethrower. They're like part of his whole thing. It's also very it makes persuasion sound so aggressive. Yes. Like it's a where it's a war being waged. Yeah, war. it's weapons grade persuasion yeah. skills. Yeah. Yeah, argument as war. That's a classic conceptual metaphor, and he's he's sticking with it, baby. It's a classic for a reason. Yep. Shout out George Lakoff. Thank you for yeah. that one. And also, just to just to that point before, we can move on from this, but saying that the poor little sticks didn't see it coming, attributing agency and cognition to inanimate objects. Scott Adams outing himself as an object-oriented ontologist. He uh, reads, he's yeah. read Vibrant Matter. Uh, he's like, you know, he's all in. He's all new in on the triple O baby. new materialism. Let's go. Yes. Let's go. You know, <laughs> well, um, and there's I mean, a lot of ambient rhetoric going. That's on right. Here. Yes, lots of ambient rhetoric here. Uh, so we're going to get into some hairier territory here about Scott's predictions again, because of course, what would this book be if we didn't just keep beating the readers over the head with Scott's predictions? Over the course of my writing career, I've made lots of other public predictions. For example, in my 2004 book, The Religion War, I predicted the rise of an Islamic caliphate in the Middle East and their use of hobby-sized drones for terror attacks. That happens to be a good description of ISIS in 2017. <laughs> I had a similar confidence in that prediction as I did in Trump's win. So he predicted ISIS also, as an aside, oh. just to say, he did predict ISIS as well as Trump. He's he's setting up his, his propensity here to predict world historical atrocities, which, again, I just have to do a little... So, again, first... 
a book written in 2004 called The Religion War. I cannot possibly think of a more, like, stock standard new atheist kind of title <laughs> for an early 2000s book than that. Yeah, he's That's, a hack. He just rips yeah. off whatever the, like, like the pat or, like, default contrarian position is on what's going on. So it's yes. not so much, like, a novel thesis. It's, like... This is what a lot of people are saying, but I feel like you're not paying attention hard enough to what people are saying. So, yeah, like religion, religion's really bad. It's 2004. We have radical Islam. We have radical Christianity. They're exactly the same. Religion's bad. Yes. Let's go. No, absolutely. I mean, again, it's like when you actually put that into context that this is a book written in 2004 just, you know, like post 9-11, like war in Afghanistan has been going for a couple of years now. War in Iraq is just getting stoked. Like this is probably not like people stoking fears about a holy wow. war is not exactly a novel observation here. Well, but, it is a novel observation because it's a novel. It is book. a novel. It's actually a novella. It's not long oh. enough to be a novel, uh, according to the Wikipedia page. I do have to give a little bit of context on this because this book sounds so fascinating there's a lot of a lot of psychology going on in this book as some might say a lot say. of cognitive science a lot of cognitive science here this is a sequel to his first novella a sequel to his first novella called god's debris and he uh, describes this book as well as those two books and not dilbert as what will be his quote ultimate legacy in this book, a character, the main character, uh, is called an avatar who must stop the epic clash of civilizations between the Western world, led by Christian extremist General Horatio Cruz, and the Middle East, led by Muslim extremist Al-Z. <laughs> Does he, so in this book that he's writing about the art of rhetoric and such, she cites you know, cognitive science and various expertise. On what grounds is he authorized to give us this take <laughs> on, um, you know, global dynamic of religion? Like, d does he happen to have any other expertise that we don't yet know about? Like, do you know, do you know if he does or? From my reading, no. Like, okay, he yeah. literally only has his knowledge of persuasion. But again, listen, listen and a Dilbert. little. And Dilbert. Culture. And, and okay, business culture. Here's what I think is that some of this authorship, and as he just said, like that, this, that, that will be his true legacy. I, I think he is, you know, Dilbert was such a success. Oh, wow. But, oh, people think I'm just a dumb cop. It, like, he wants to prove how smart he is and is just mm -hmm. churning out, like, and again, because it's not anything original, he's kind of scooping up, like, oh, everybody seems to be talking about religion. Oh, everybody's talking about Trump. Like, what can he make? I, I don't know. It just seems like very, again, self-serving, unsurprisingly, but it's more, it seems like for him to confirm to himself that he's smart enough to write a book about a big, punchy topic than it is really contributing anything new to the discourse absolutely yeah no no yeah, that's i think we need to do a separate series on on uh not just the, the religion war which is such a funny <laughs> but also a sort of a scott adams themed podcast but also oh my yeah God, well yeah. i mean god's debris i i love that title <laughs> God, I hate when God just leaves trash around yeah, and you have to clean up after God. You that's know? right. That's right. It's a real, it's a real, uh, it's a tough job. Um, Bring a broom if you're going to be hanging out near God. That's just, what I recommend. Or are we God's debris? Is that, is that what he's saying? Like, that It very well might be. Only um, one way to find out. To find that's out. right. That's right. I, I just have to just a couple more things about this book because it's so absurd it bears mentioning here. Uh, so the avatar, the main character, applies his unparalleled ability to identify developing patterns and accurately determine the most probable results of a situation to accurately predict the war plans of both Cruz and Al Z. So the book the religion war the main character is somebody who's really really good at prediction and uses his prediction skills to develop what uh, what he calls here a simple yet catchy phrase that he disseminates magically to everybody on earth's phones the quote is if god is so smart why do you fart and that is the phrase that apparently plants the seed of doubt that inevitably will end the religion war if god is so smart why do you fart? And that's that is supposed to fix. Yes. How that... is this received by the public? This, <laughs> this book, because I've unfortunately never heard of it, but um, 
I, I think you're not alone in that, Sophie. I think many people have not heard of this yeah. book. I do want to say that uh, there was one review that uh, of somebody who talked with Scott Adams who said, you know, the religion war, it describes a civilizational conflict in 2040. The hard-nosed hero builds a wall around the jihadists and, quote, essentially kills everybody there, Adams told me. Quote, I have to be careful because I'm talking about something pretty close to genocide. So I'm not saying I prefer it. I'm saying I predict it. Okay. All right. So, so this is this is his whole kayfabe tactic yes which is i'm just predicting it yep i don't prefer it exactly yep i think you said it last time calvin yeah it's he wants to present himself as just trying to call balls and strikes rather than making evaluative judgments so which is the same problem the mainstream media has he's really not a an iconoclast right right which is ironic in all of this too because he's saying that facts don't (laughs) matter here but he's also kind of relying on this conceit that he can interpret the facts that are out there to accurately predict what is going to happen in the future it's just it's a lot it's very confusing so we should we should continue along here he writes i have lots of other predictions in my portfolio that were less accurate some were whimsical or wishful thinking or run-of-the-mill guessing based on limited data my trump predictions were the first ones that use the master persuader framing that's because master persuaders are rare he continues talking about the fact that he i guess made a small fortune investing in apple at the outset of the ipod craze that worked out well for him likewise master Master persuaders Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger made a tidy profit for me when I owned Berkshire Hathaway stock. He says here, you should never take financial advice from cartoonists, but let me tell you one thing that feels safe to share. If the CEO of a publicly traded company is routinely described as having a, quote, reality distortion field, as was the case with Steve Jobs, keep an eye on that company. That's a sign of a master persuader. Oh, there's just so much happening. I feel like, um... (laughs) okay. So he's basically just like he's like betting on ponies, basically. Like yeah. Whoever whoever yep. is the most persuasive is gonna make me money in the or and that's like evidence of the fact that he can predict because of is he very wealthy at this point? Like is that true? Is he According to our last episode, Scott, by his own words, has F U money. Okay. That is well, his right. Yeah, that's his phrase for his own wealth. So he he talks a little bit more about how the book is going to be organized. We'll start by talking about the limits of the human brain to perceive reality, and that will prime you for the persuasion lessons that follow. Not his brain. (laughs) Yes, that's right. (laughs) Once you have an understanding of the basics, I'll show you how I used my understanding of persuasion to predict events in the presidential election of 2016. So, ready? Let's go. He actually wrote that in the the book. (laughs) This next section, it's the second and final section of this chapter, (laughs) is called About Facts. (laughs) Not to be confused with the movie About Schmidt. Uh, Yes. Are we dinging every movie reference that we're doing? That's right. Yes. Yeah. Because we're going to keep bringing it back to movies here. Yep. Maybe Uh, we could do that for the... the, um, thumbnail mock-up for this episode we could do like about schmidt about uh, like schmidt. that poster but just <laughs> about scott facts. Yeah, yeah, or yeah scott yeah about scott we're not going with an album the chipmunks themed thumbnail we could put some chipmunks in there i think we could we'll do a collage we'll yeah we can we'll out. we'll have we'll have some chipmunks with our faces superimposed over the top we'll we'll have yeah, this that's already what i was thinking okay. exactly absolutely we can pursue this later that's right that's right about facts On August 13th, 2015, I predicted in my blog that Donald Trump had a 98% chance of winning the presidency based on his persuasion skills. Wait a second. Yes. Predicted that he had a 98% chance of winning. Now, we'll get into why that number specifically, if that's what you're wondering about. I just don't know if that makes sense to me as a concept, but go ahead. Okay, so a week earlier, the most respected political forecaster in the United States, this is get ready for an incredibly 2017 line here. The most respected political forecaster in the United States, Nate Silver, had put Trump's odds of winning the Republican nomination at 2% in his 538.com blog. In those early days of the election, the overwhelming majority of pundits in the business regarded Trump as a novelty and a sideshow. So, hard break here. Persuasion is all about the tools and techniques of changing people's (laughs) minds with with or without facts and reason. Oh, that's what persuasion is. Yes, now we finally have a definition. Persuasion is all about the tools and techniques of changing people's minds with or without facts and reason. 
When I started writing favorable blog posts about Trump's persuasion talents, it felt like going to war alone. In California, where I lived, it seemed as if most Trump supporters were in hiding because of the social and career risks of publicly supporting him. I wasn't counting on anyone's having my back in this fight. Luckily, I was wrong. Trump's Twitter followers adopted me immediately and had my back every step of the way. When the critics came after me on Twitter and elsewhere, Trump supporters flooded in to back me. I didn't ask them to do it, they just did. One of my motivations for writing this book is that so many people who supported me on Twitter specifically asked me to write it. This book is a favor returned. And underneath there, there's a little box that says persuasion tip number two. Humans are hardwired to reciprocate favors. If you want someone's cooperation in the future, do something for that person today. That's so, a persuasion tip? Yes, that's persuasion tip nice. number two. Be a nice person, yes. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't cost a thing. Okay, here's what I wonder is, he so he's saying here that he was predicting Trump's win on Twitter and all of Trump's supporters supported him. But like, were they supporting him? Or does this, like, this seems like a wonderful time for him to mention the concept of confirmation bias. Yes, there we go. Is he gonna do that? I feel like maybe not, but. Nope. He could. <laughs> Nope, he certainly is not. Uh, although that you're right, Sophie, this would be the ideal time to bring it up because I think that when somebody makes a baseless prediction of something that you want to happen, that is definitionally a case of confirmation bias when you come rushing to their support. I also think this is a great example of that issue of like prediction versus preference. Yes. Uh, where you have all these people in your corner you're congratulating them on being such good people backing you yeah. uh stopping you from being ratioed or whatever like mm -hmm. whatever they were doing for him maybe those are your people maybe you are one of them yeah, or at so. the very least they love you so much that you you know you are a de facto member of that discourse right. community yes. and it makes me it makes me think about people like Glenn Greenwald and, and other other people who have kind of like slid into the Trump fold mm -hmm. where it's like but they still kind of pretend that they're not really that they, that they're just calling yeah. balls and strikes yes. and it's so dishonest just say that you're you know those are your people just yeah just say it because the other thing is like i just think he has kind of an interesting relationship with that group of kind of opting in and out of it because you know if, if what's happened to these people is that they've been like blindsided with Trump's like persuasion flamethrower, <laughs> then are these the most like impressive people or do these people just seem like the rubes that are like easily or, or I mean, I guess everybody's powerless to resistance, although I don't know that if Trump is the master persuader that he is supposed to be, shouldn't we all have like we we were a nation divided, but like anyway. It, just it was seems... a pretty narrow win. Right. Yes. Right. And, yeah. uh, and a lot of, as you know, obviously other factors. We mustn't forget that there were other factors That's that contributed right. to the race. But it just seems like sometimes these people are like commendable and wonderful. And sometimes if you're following his logic, these are like a pack of dummies that are just sheep for whatever it is Trump is spinning up for them. Right. Yeah. And I don't think that Scott is, uh, I mean, he literally writes in the next sentence, you might think you can resist persuasion techniques just by recognizing them in action, but knowing the technique won't protect you as much as you might think. And again, there's like very little self reflexivity here to say like, what if I'm writing this book, just using the using the sort of like prediction of Trump's win, the fact that he did win, and now anything that I say in this book, therefore is like confirmation bias truth, because I predicted it, because Trump won, and because I'm writing it, therefore, that's like his like quasi logical syllogism, that anything that he says further is going to be correct, that anything here is going to be the reason why he predicted Trump's win and why he was right. Although I do feel like I get a little bit of the sense that you know, since he did already do the job of setting himself in a class apart, he's kind of on another level from the rest of us mm -hmm. when it comes to seeing these things, being able to do them himself, like he's kind of operating on another plane. So a lot of the time when he says, oh, people can't resist, oh, you, you have confirmation, but like, he means like you, you, the rest of, you know, the rest of you maybe and not 
yeah. immune to it a little bit more. Yeah, we're, we're noticing him, I think, in action getting hoisted by his own petard. Like, he is quite literally falling into the same trap that he is even saying, you know, we, we believe that this happens to everyone else except ourselves. And it seems like he but himself it, is falling right like into a, the... <laughs> that part in Arrested Development where Tobias is talking about marriage, you know, he's like, oh, it never works. But it might but work But it might work for us. us. Like, yeah, that's, exactly <laughs> that's right. Well, did it work for those people? <laughs> no, it never does. I mean, these people somehow delude themselves into thinking it might, but... <laughs> but it might work for us. Well, I want to get into this next section because here's where Scott actually gives us his first rhetorical analysis of a strategy that Trump used. We're, we're now like several dozen pages into this book and he finally gives us an actual palpable thing to latch onto here. So why did I say Trump had exactly a 98% chance of winning when I couldn't possibly know the odds? That's a persuasion technique. You saw Trump use the intentional wrongness persuasion play over and over again, and almost always to good effect. So the intentional wrongness persuasion play is what he's naming this here. The method goes like this. One, make a claim that is directionally accurate, but has a big exaggeration or factual error in it. Two, wait for people to notice the exaggeration or error and spend endless hours talking about how wrong it is. Step three, when you dedicate focus and energy to an idea, you remember it. And though things that have the most mental impact on you will irrationally seem as though they are high in priority, even if they are not, that's persuasion. Wait, okay. so that was another case where he changed who you was referring to, right? Yes. Because at the beginning, he's talking about, like, if you want to use this strategy, here's what you do. Yes. But then by the end, he's talking about you as an here's audience member. Yes. Like, yeah. Yep. Um, yeah. Very and he does have that kind of like parlor magician air of talking like, hey, look over here. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna say like, it's like, it's so shifty. But also, okay, so but, so that earlier, cut to several moments earlier when I was like, mm -hmm. wait a second, that doesn't make sense. How could you predict 98%? chance mm -hmm. wouldn't you just predict he would win or not win like that right. should be a binary predict or not not i predict he has a 98 percent chance so well, that moment where i was like hey wait a second that doesn't make sense that's supposed to be the thing that i'll be because i will continue to remember that i was right and he was wrong sophie you fact, just I'll got persuaded he was right. <laughs> I, he's right but like i think he's missing the step of where i come around to thinking he's like, certainly I will remember the 98% more likely than if he hadn't included it. Well, and here's the, here's the thing where his theory of persuasion does really get a little bit blinkered. I mean, if it hasn't already, it's literally, it's literally contradictory here because he says persuasion is all about the tools and techniques of changing people's minds right. when really what it seems like he's saying here is that persuasion is actually all about having people dedicate focus and energy to an idea so that it has a mental impact on them. Not that it necessarily brings them around to another side. It just causes people to focus on you. Yeah. It's just a way like for him. Now he's defining persuasion as just a means of gaining publicity and attention, right? Um, attention economy. Exactly. Which and again is like, I don't think that's wrong. I think it's banal. Like all that, it's all banal good, and all press is good press is basically yes, the same. Like the exactly. more people are talking about it, that certainly I, I could see an argument that that like opens a door for persuasion or sets the scene for like once you've muddied the waters, it's much yes. easier, whatever. But it, it certainly can't stop. Yeah. Because I, mean, I still think he was wrong when he said that. Yeah, and presumably he's going to come, hopefully at some point in the book, he's going to try making some claims about actual, the, the, the sort of traditional definition of persuasion in terms of changing someone else's mind. But for right now, he's only focusing on muddying the waters, as you so aptly put it, Sophie. He says, I picked 98% as my Trump prediction because Nate Silver of 538.com was saying 2%. I did that for branding and persuasion purposes. It is easier to remember my prediction, both because of the way it fits with Silver's prediction and for its audacity, which people perceived as wrongness. The prediction was designed to attract attention, and it did. It was also designed to pair my name with Nate Silver's name and to raise my profile by association. That worked too. Social media folks mentioned me in the same sentence with Silver countless times during the election, exactly as I had hoped. 
and every mention raised my importance as a political observer because I was being compared with someone already important in that field. Okay, so here's my question, or the inconsistency I'm seeing, which maybe is designed to persuade me, actually, and I don't realize it, but it certainly sounds like what he's saying is that this prediction is something he made up. Yes, but he did. Whole but cloth. if he's also trying to take credit for being like a he can see past the you know like he can see through the all the confusion into like what's truly going to happen like it seems like he's trying to as you know a hypnotist or whatever say like i predicted this and nobody else did and i predicted it but he's also saying like well i took what nate silver said and i flipped it yeah and then all of a sudden people were talking about me like mm -hmm. so so charitably maybe when he's saying the prediction was designed to if I'm being charitable, maybe what he means here is the way I framed the prediction was designed to. Like, if we could insert that, yes. maybe that's what he's saying. But he certainly has a lot of... It just seems like, yeah, he's basically saying, I took what Nate Silver did and flipped it. Yeah, but he's but he's using what he calls the intentional wrongness play. In other words, like, he knows that he's wrong, but he's doing so intentionally in order to garner to get attention. attention. Exactly. Yeah. And he writes further, Trump used the intentional wrongness persuasion play often, and it seemed to work every time, at least in terms of attracting attention where he wanted it. It works even when you know he's doing it. If you're talking about whatever topic he wants you to focus on, he has your mind right where he wants it, even if you are criticizing him for his errors while you're there. And then he goes on to talk about the border wall with Mexico, which is already the example that he brought up in the last chapter. It's kind of a little bit redundant, but, you know, talking about the fact that, like, he made this, you know, bold claim about, like, we are going to build a, a, a whole long wall along the border of Mexico and make them pay for it. He did make some casual admissions that the border would be secured in different ways in different places, but most of the time he ignored those details, and wisely so. By continuing to call it a wall without details, he caused the public and the media to view that as an error. So they argued about it. They fact-checked it. They put together cost estimates. They criticized Trump for not understanding that it couldn't be a wall the entire way. How stupid can he be? And when they were done criticizing Trump for the error, or saying that he would build one big solid wall, the critics had convinced themselves that border security was a higher priority than they had thought coming into the conversation. The ideas that you think about the most are the ones that automatically and irrationally rise in your mental list of priorities. And Trump made us think about the wall a lot. He did that because he knew voters would see him as the strongest voice on the topic. It also sucked up media energy that might have focused on political topics he didn't understand at the same depth as his competitors. Master persuaders move your energy to the topics that help them, independent of facts and reason. I mean, I think he was doing that to some extent. Like, sure. and, and to the extent that he was, like Sophie was saying earlier, this is a really banal analysis of what Trump does to focus public attention on certain things. But... I do have to take a massive issue with the intentional part of the yes. intentional wrongness strategy. Yes. Yes. I think in the vast majority of cases, it's not intentional on Trump's part. I think no. he he thinks he's right. And I think I, Trump really did believe that they could build one wall, one solid wall, the greatest wall you've ever seen. Yes. And and yeah, probably when he found true. out when he found out that you couldn't, he was really upset. I, yes. Uh, well, and this is this is always an issue with like post hoc rhetorical analyses is the overdetermination of intentionality, right? One of the first things that you learn in a rhetorical criticism class is like it is notoriously difficult to be able to predict intention, especially when you are analyzing something for which a conclusion has already been arrived at, right? You can say that something was a success. It's harder to say whether or not somebody intentionally use certain strategies to make that happen. Again, it's part of the sort of fallacy of a completely speaker-centered focus for a rhetorical situation. With no focus on audience, they are just automatons who are instinctively, irrationally, spontaneously coming up to these conclusions because of the brilliant tactics of an intentional rhetorician who's making it happen. But I think What's for me, what's interesting with what he just did, this example, it started out by him explaining how his intentional wrongness was the drive for him predicting Trump, who he predicted would win because of his artful use of intentional wrongness, which made it likely that he would win. Like he was wrong about Trump it being right that it would be Trump, who it's definitely gonna be because of how good he was like 
he did that thing again of like switching like who are we talking about like i don't know i think um to be fair i think the intentional wrongness part was the 98 percent like sure, that that sure, yes. that specific figure i think yeah. he wouldn't say that he was intentionally being wrong about trump winning i think he did really yeah. believe that trump was going to win absolutely no i take that discussion as being slightly more about the way he phrased the percentage because i don't right. know that like all of the talk in the media was about is it 98 or not 98 like him predicting it was the wrongness that was being discussed right. and sucking up the talking. So yes, regardless of how he's presenting it. Absolutely. Just to move on here, uh, I think that we should keep talking a little bit more about some of the other examples here. But really, we've touched on kind of the only persuasive tactic that he's going to bring up here is the intentional wrongness play. In terms of intention, he writes, I don't believe Trump purposely injects errors into his work, except in the form of oversimplification and hyperbole, as in the wall example. That stuff is intentional, for sure. But for the smaller errors, it is more that he doesn't bother to correct himself. I use a similar technique with my blog when someone points out a typo. Sometimes I leave the typo because it makes you pause and reread the sentence a few times to figure out what the typo was supposed to mean. The mistake attracts your energy to my writing, and that's what a writer wants. I want your focus. So if you find a typo in my blog, that was on purpose. It's not because I'm a bad writer. It's not because I'm not a careful editor. It's because I did that on purpose, and now you're talking about it. It's a smart technique. I like that. Yeah, I am going to take that Again, if we talk about cognitive dissonance and confirmation bias, seems like there's a lot of rationalization going on here. Yes. Oh, man. So, yeah, it's, it's again, like he talks about some other more banal examples. Like, when you first saw the title of this book, did you think to yourself that Trump doesn't say bigly? He says big league, like big league chew. If you noticed my title error, it probably helped you remember the book. And now whenever you hear the words bigly or big league in some other context, it will make you think of this book. So again, he's kind of lauding himself for how, how, how sticky his ideas are given uh, his persuasive talent, uh, despite being a commercial grade persuader. Which is just a beautiful like blanket sort of, uh, you know, catch all for any previous error he's ever made. <laughs> yep, exactly. That. So the only other thing that I want to touch on in this chapter, and there's this uh, final subsection called facts are weaker than fiction. If you have ever tried to talk someone out of their political beliefs uh, by providing facts, you know it doesn't work. That's because people think they have their own facts, better facts. And if they know they don't have better facts, they change the subject. People are not easily switched from one political opinion to the other. And facts are weak persuasion. So Trump ignores facts whenever they are inconvenient. I know you don't want to think this works in terms of persuasion, but it does. And I know you want to believe that having a president who ignores facts makes the world a worse place in a number of vague ways that you can't quite articulate. But Trump tends to be directionally accurate on the important stuff, and the little stuff never seems to matter. I want to be clear that I'm not expressing a preference for ignoring facts. Again, going back to that prefer versus predict. I'm simply saying that a master persuader can do it and still come out ahead no matter how many times the media points out errors. And specifically here, the other tactic that he literally goes into here, the other sort of master persuader tactic, is not apologizing. Simple as that. The, the persuasion tactic here is that Trump never apologizes. As he says, the average consumer of political news can hold only a handful of issues in his head. Any of the lesser topics gets flushed out of memory. So Trump can invent any reality he wants for the less important topics. All you will remember is that he provides his reasons, he didn't apologize, and his opponents called him a liar like they always do. If Trump had apologized for any of his factual errors, I would remember whatever alleged wrongness triggered the apology. That would stick in my mind. I assume that's at least partly why he doesn't do apologies. Apologizing would be a sign of weakness and invite continual demands for more apologies. In Trump's specific case, apologies wouldn't have helped his campaign because there would have been too many demands for them. But in the case of normal people who are not master persuaders and only occasionally make public mistakes, apologies are still usually the right way to go. <laughs> so, oh, so he's just saying... Persuader, that's why he doesn't apologize and not yes. Like well, and he's also he's also just making it very clear. You all should apologize, right. especially yes. if you do something to me. Please this is apologize. This is yes. but, but but for but for him, 
yeah, that uh, that doesn't apply. And I mean, again, this is very banal. Like, mm-hmm. of course, I think that's true. Like, I, I can see how that benefits the public image of a figure. I mean, it, institutions do the same thing. Absolutely. Um, just like wait till something dies down. Yeah. Don't bother apologizing for it. Yeah. But I don't know if it's a persuasion tactic. I think right. it's just Trump. Like a lot of Trump doesn't believe things. he needs to apologize, you yeah. know? Like I Absolutely. think like him like like don't apologize, don't like all these things are like they it's how you stay out of like the hot seat, but it's not serving to change minds. Like it's not that some of these strategies aren't useful and used, but yeah, I think it's a stretch to call them persuasion exactly. Well, and it's also a stretch because that implies strategy or intention on the part of Trump. And I really think he just like doesn't ever think he needs to apologize. Yeah, it's it's still kind of murky here. He does get into a little bit more below about whether or not we, the hoi polloi, are are really supposed to be practicing this. But okay, so as people who do and study technical communication, I had to run this one by you two because to me, this just does not pass the smell test. Uh, this next paragraph says, if I haven't yet persuaded you that mistakes can be useful in persuasion, consider a small 2012 study by researcher Daniel Oppenheimer that found students had better recall when a font was harder to read. Oppenheimer explains the unexpected result by noting that people slow down and concentrate harder to compensate for the harder to read font. That extra concentration is what makes lasting memories form. I had a professor in college who took this same philosophy, but I think he's really, I will say, punching a hole in the fabric of my reality uh, <laughs> regarding my understanding of effective professional communication, which is yes. you know, in my daily work. But like, things should be easy to read. Things should be accessible. You know what I mean? These various things. Yeah. And, uh, yes. He's really, he's making, he's, you know. Wow. It's giving Boom. me a lot to think about. <laughs> Quite a lot yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I, I think it's, he's probably misreading the results of that study. I think it's probably less that it's, hard to read and more that it stands out that there's effective contrast and like hierarchy of course like things that are things that are highlighted or contrasted from the the rest of the textual surround like of course people are going to remember and focus on but you don't have to do that with like papyrus font or like Mm -hmm. like there's um, ways to do that that aren't comic sans or bad (laughs) yeah yes exactly more elegant ways to do it Yeah, absolutely. No, and that was, I mean, again, I think it really does matter. Like, you can pretend there's no ethics to this, that you're just calling balls and strikes. But one of the reasons I wanted to frame that early question about, is it ethical to be factual or to be straightforward and not manipulative or misleading in your communication? And that's because I think, you know, Sophie, when you talked about good technical communication practices, you were talking about things like accessibility, right? Like making sure that a wide array of audiences have the ability to process the information if they, in the ways that they need to. You're being considerate of your audience. You are not just trying to like play a trick on them and manipulate them into something, which is why I think we can't, we can't talk about persuasion or rhetoric separate from ethics in this case, right? Uh, Whether, I mean, obviously in this case, because it's political, but even when we're talking about something like, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the communication design, I think that there are ethical considerations built into every choice that you make. Yeah, I, I, I buy that. I think that that is true. I think that, yeah, many of the tactics that he's talking about seem to be about pulling one over, using your sort of cognition, you know, against you. And like, yeah, and again, it's a very aggressive take on persuasion, whether or not all the things he's talking about are actually, I would say not exactly persuasion, but yeah, it's like very mean spirited. Well, when your model, when your model for human interaction is how Dogbert treated Dilbert in (laughs) in the office. That's true. uh, You know, this is no, there's no surprise. No surprises. No, absolutely not. So uh, finishing out the chapter here, last uh, last couple paragraphs. I will pause here to tell you that while there is lots of science behind the best ways to influence people, choosing among the many ways to persuade via, quote, surprising the brain, the tactics that he talked about above, can be more art than science. No two situations are alike, so knowing what methods of persuasion worked in a different context might not help you in your current situation. 
Then under here, big bold text that says, warning, intentionally ignoring facts and logic in public is a dangerous strategy, unless you are a master persuader with thick skin and an appetite for risk. Most of us don't have the persuasion skills, risk profile, and moral flexibility to pull it off. See, this is also bad technical communication because you should put the warnings at the beginning That's of right. your, your guide, not <laughs> he buried halfway the lead through. Yes. The very, yeah. very end. Yep. I just I don't appreciate this like cast system he's making of like, because it seems like he would, it would seem like he's trying to teach you how to do it, but really it's more like a magician revealing his tricks than it is like, learn how to do this. Right. And it all kind of makes the reader feel like a big dummy for like, oh, I didn't know. Again, which makes you wonder, like, who is it for? Because I don't know who comes out of this book feeling good or more informed or, or better capable or better about themselves except for the author himself. Right. Yeah. It's it, it kind of ends with this Pyrrhic sort of like, look at how smart I am and how stupid you are. And like, am I trying to teach you something here? Well, maybe not, because even if you know about all this stuff, you're still going to be susceptible yeah. to it. <laughs> we And yeah. then at the very end here, just a little bit of humility from Scott. We don't know for sure that Trump came out ahead by oversimplifying his wall idea to the point where it sounded crazy to critics and even some supporters. But in my judgment, he probably did come out ahead. By inauguration day, we were talking about the costs and details of the wall. The country had already accepted that the wall would probably get built, at least in part. And in the long run, presidents are judged by their success. Love it or hate it, historians will someday probably judge Trump's wall to be a presidential success story. Success cures most types of quote-unquote mistakes. And that's the end of the chapter. Yeah, I really think he wrote this too early in yeah, the Trump presidency. Yes, he did. Like, to... Yes, like, he did. Because nobody's calling on him to like predict the long-term legacy of Trump. Like he is safer in pointing to his success at having predicted the win and how that happened, and not making these like in the future. Like, no, they won't. <laughs> or mm -hmm. I don't know. I guess maybe he's taken a risk that I can't fathom taking because I'm not a master communicator. But <laughs> it just doesn't seem very wise for him to pen this all down <laughs> i also just think like you know we're a rhetoric podcast i have to flag that he did plagiarize aristotle there and not and yes. not refer to him by name i mean come on knowing like, what methods of per all the available means of persuasion working for a given situation come on scott come on what, scott 101 for that if you think he's going to apologize he's not going to because he knows. yeah no he did that to <laughs> draw right. my attention now i <sighs> now i will remember him galvin you've been persuaded no <laughs> when you fuck up it draws attention and i bet and that's now, good every time that's you good think about aristotle you'll probably think of scott adams too because it's true yep so yeah and to any of you who might be listening who are Scott Adams fans, who might be saying, well, Scott's stupid book worked because you're doing a whole podcast episode about him, I would only say that, well, it brought you to our podcast. Uh, we are actually making ourselves more famous by association by using Scott Adams' name in the same sentence. So, uh, you know, you know, drop that DJ Khaled meme. You played yourself. Congratulations. You played yourself. <laughs> Wow, you really tied it all together there. <laughs> nice job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank that you. was good. <laughs> I you. mean, I think, yeah, I think totally like, you know, I get why Scott would take the opposite position of Nate Silver. I, I'm often doing that too, so I can't really <laughs> rag him for that. But, <laughs> yeah, but totally. yeah, no. Things he said. But yeah, but no, I mean, I think we're doing the right thing as well by taking the opposite position of Scott Adams. Yes. If Scott Adams is always wrong, then the opposite would have to be right. There's a whole Seinfeld episode about this. <laughs> Um, which I recommend people check out. This is how we're going to get to the top. Every decision I've ever made in my entire life has been wrong. <laughs> my life is the complete opposite of everything I want it to be. Uh, George, you know that woman just looked at you. So what? What am I supposed to do? Go talk to her. Elaine, bald men with no jobs and no money who live with their parents <laughs> don't approach strange women. Well, here's your chance to try the opposite. Instead of tuna salad and being intimidated by women, chicken salad and going right up to them. Yeah, I should do the opposite. I should. If every instinct you have is wrong, then the opposite would have to be right. <laughs> yes, I will do the opposite. 
Absolutely. Love it. Oh my God. So that's the end of uh, why facts are overrated. Are you guys, con- are you guys convinced now that, yes. that, that we live in a postmodern hellscape where facts and reason don't have any ethical upshot? You know, I never would have even thought of it but unless Scott Adams had brought it up. I don't think anybody else really talked about no one's made that point. Relevant. No yeah, one. Yeah, it's like ever. a really interesting and unique point of view that he's uh, got here. But um, I can't, I can't count it all out. I will say to, to you know, be again. I'm going to be fair. I do think that this. I think the you know facts don't matter position runs up against its own self-contradictory problem of if facts don't matter why why are we listening to you why why what it is nothing that you're saying factual i mean i guess we're just giving you attention and not really considering the points you're making but it's it just seems to not make a lot of sense to me (laughs) yeah that's and that's the thing because i feel like it's one thing to argue that like persuasion is about more than just the facts yes like and that's you know sure but like Again, he he. Some it's it. He frustrates me because as a writer, he'll take something that at first you're like, okay, maybe this is. I'm not going to agree, but maybe he's got something here, and then it just comes out as such illogical nonsense that it's like it's you can't even. I don't know. It's like you can't even like. It's like a waste of time to try to really like break it all down and like diagram it because it's doesn't doesn't you can't like. It's just silly. Yeah, yeah. it is a waste of time. Anyways, thanks for listening. Anyway, thank you for dedicating an hour and 15 minutes of your time to listening to us talk about... (laughs) You know what I mean. See, that's... No, but see, that's... We're just doing what Scott taught us to do, which is point out your own lack of logic so obviously that people can't help but pay attention and ultimately actually think that you're right. Mm -hmm. Which we are. Which we are. Course. That's right. Yeah. Success in the form of greater listeners and uh, lots of laudatory comments on our Twitter page cures any type of mistake that we might be guilty of. 100%. So 98%. Wanna, 98%. 98%. 98%. Well, thank you once again for joining us for this second installment of Lose Bigly, the Scott Adams story. I'm sure that uh, we'll be back in a couple of months with another episode after some other uh, horrifying atrocity, uh, discursive atrocity that Scott Adams has committed. But until then, stay factual out there. We are Reverb. We are Alex, Calvin, and Sophie, Alvin, Simon, and Theodore. (laughs) We will... We will be sure to be back at you again with another episode soon. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. Our show today was produced by Alex Helberg, Calvin Pollock, and Sophie Wadzak with editing work by Alex. Reverb's co-producers at large are Olivia Burnett and Ben Williams. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. If you've enjoyed our show and want to help amplify more of our public scholarship work, please consider leaving us a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice and tell a friend about us. We sincerely appreciate the support of our listeners. Thanks so much for tuning in.